Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 159 of the Australian Hiker podcast. In our last episode, episode 158, we talked about snowshoeing in the Australian Alps. But for those of you that want to take this a step further, there are other options which include skiing. In this episode, we catch up with Gary Tisher, who we've previously interviewed, and find out about options for skiing away from the resorts. We talk about safety and logistics in the backcountry in general terms, and you'll find out more than you ever wanted to know about what to do with toilet waste in the snow. To round off this episode, we catch back up with Bruce Easton from Wilderness Sports about options for getting a taster in backcountry skiing. We hope you enjoy. So today we're catching up with Gary Tisher to talk about backcountry snow sports. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Gary. It's a pleasure, Tim. Yeah, it's, it's great. And I heard you went snowshoeing last weekend, I believe. We did, or a couple of weekends ago, and yeah, it was a, uh, uh, enjoyed it. Um, definitely a, a good learning curve and definitely a good physical workout. Well, snowshoeing would be one of the first ways to get into um, backcountry touring, um, unless you're a competent cross-country skier. So yeah, that's, that's a great start. All right, so... What do we mean by backcountry snow sports? What, what does backcountry mean? Backcountry really means, so you've got the resorts and um, if you stay within their, their, if you downhill ski, you're often kept within their boundaries. So backcountry is really anything that's not supported by a resort and um, takes you away from those resorts. Um an introduction to backcountry can just only be um, a few kilometres away from those resorts or, or roads and that sort of thing, and that would be the best way to start. But it really means that you're, you're out there on your own um, coping with non-groomed trails or, or actually no trails at all. So you're heading cross-country across the snow. Um, so backcountry can mean, say, 3Ks from a resort or it can mean 25 kilometres away yeah, um, or and- even longer. And that's what we did with the uh, the snowshoeing last weekend. We uh, we were really within about three and a half sort of kilometres of the uh, the resort itself. Um, you know, went out, turned around, came back. Um, but yeah, definitely creating our own trails uh, and working off nice, fresh, powdery sort of snow. That's that's right. And when you're backcountry, you're going to cover all sorts of conditions, from beautiful fresh snow conditions to icy conditions to no snow at all. Um, in some patches that you might have to pick up your skis or snowshoes and walk across. So, um, yeah, that that's one of the things you have to understand about backcountry tour. You're gonna um, you're gonna hit lots of different conditions and lots of different weather if you stay out there for a few days. All right. Now, why would you want to go ski touring or snowshoeing or skiing in the backcountry? What are, what are the benefits? Well, what drew me to, to backcountry touring, and it was mainly ski touring, I didn't snowshoe till some years after the, um, skiing, uh, it was walking the, the 
particularly the snowy mountains, uh, which are perfect for backcountry touring in the winter. Um, as they are great for, for hiking during the summer, I wanted to see what places like Mount Jagungal and some of the huts were like under snow. And so that was my main reason for taking up cross-country skiing and, and uh, backcountry touring and, and snow camping. Okay. And I suppose really as well, and you know, when, when the ski season is in full swing as opposed to uh, the COVID version we've got at the moment, there are a lot of people, and I know when we drove up to do the snowshoeing, there are a lot of cars on the road, even when, even when we got there fairly early. So I'm guessing when you're in the backcountry, you've got a bit more privacy uh, and a bit more, uh, a bit more serenity that you're, you're normally going to pick up away from the resorts. Absolutely, and that's that really is one of the attractions of, of getting out past the resorts because it, it becomes incredibly quiet out in the snow. Um, you'll hear the occasional bird. Um, we've come across wombats actually in the snow, um, but it, it's very, very quiet and it's uh, very peaceful away from the lifts and you have the place to yourselves and, and you may be in a valley or on a hillside with no other tracks and, and that's a, a fabulous experience. I must admit, I mean, as I said, with our snowshoeing last weekend, we, we came across one group doing some training on the way up uh, and right towards the end of the trail, we came across another group of people doing snowshoeing as well. But otherwise, it was just the three of us for pretty much most of the day. So it, it, as you say, it was pretty peaceful uh, and it was pretty amazing, which is something I never really considered before. I, I, that's always something that's put me off the snow the snow fields, just the sheer number of people, uh, whereas, as you say, getting out in the open, getting out in the remote areas, you get that privacy. Absolutely. It's just um, it's just beautiful out in the backcountry around in the snowy mountains, and it's fairly easy to, to access. Um, you can park in the resorts or you can go to places like, um, or Guthick is a good place to start, and uh, Guthick Power Station is one of the, the favourites of people to start but also you can Mount Selwyn and if you're in Victoria places like Mount Stirling are also a great place to start so you stay away from Mount Buller head to Mount Stirling and it's a lot quieter and more peaceful. I must admit I have been up uh, around Guthica Power Station before but Funnily enough, it was ice diving. Uh, I was in the water I wasn't actually on the snow at that stage. Right okay yeah so it's um Probably the, the once you've decided you want to go um, into the backcountry, it probably if you've got no snow knowledge at all, no snow experience, it's best to go with someone who has experience, um, either on a, a guided trip or join a club. I joined the New South Wales Nordic Ski Club many years ago, and that was a great introduction. I'm not sure if they're still operating or not, but. Um, that was a really good way of, of getting out and, and gaining experience with other people who had already had it. Yeah, I think I think that's the thing. I mean, as you know, it's one thing going out bushwalking. I mean, you know, if you if you're familiar with that, and, and we always do tend to recommend if you're new to bushwalking, go with someone that can help you, or go with a group, or go with a club. And I, I think that I think you're right. I think going with a commercial operator or going with a club where someone can look after you and teach you the ropes is definitely the way to go. Definitely, there's with cross country skiing. There's um, there's easier ways to do it. it, it Basically, you have to learn to be lazy when you cross-country ski, um, and that's the most efficient way to do it. It's, it's not walking on skis. It's actually 
skiing and you sort of you want to slide as much as you can and that doesn't come natural to um, most people or anyone probably so just a, a two-hour lesson before you start and go around the parachute trails or mount sterling trails mount bauble maybe and um, just get your feet into skiing or just understand the sliding and and i've taken people from queensland down for a, a ski tour a trip and it was interesting to that one of the the people thought that well you point skis to go down and and they go down so that the opposite to that is to point them up the hill but unfortunately they'll go backwards so <laughs> um yeah so if you don't want to go anywhere on your skis go put the skis across the slope and uh, that would be my first tip Okay, now, now before we talk about gear itself, I mean, you know, you've got the option when you're going backcountry to to, to to just a day or potentially to go longer and actually uh, camp in the snow as well. Um, what's the What are the differences with snow camping as opposed to camping for bushwalking? Um, not a lot, actually. Um, I think these days people are trying to, to minimise weight as much as you can. However... That would be the biggest difference. With camping in the snow, you really have to have equipment that will cope with um, high winds and cold temperatures because if you don't, the snow, it will kill you. Um, and, uh, yeah, just because exposure, if when a blizzard comes through, the winds are high, um, it gets very cold, and um, you need to have good gear to, to cope with that. Um, now, most of your bushwalking gear will, will cope really well. Your waterproofs, your Gore-Texes, your fleeces, your down jackets, um, all that sort of thing um, will be completely fine. But you do have to, I think, sleeping bag, tent um, are the two things that you really have to have. A, a two or three season tent will be very cold if it's only got a mesh in it. Um, then it'll be quite cold. And if it's only a single layer tent, um, that'll be particularly cold, um, unless you've got a very good sleeping bag. Now, I think from memory, uh, four-season uh, tents tend to be either a, a solid uh, inner or, or mainly solid inner, inner layer, don't they? That's correct, yeah. They'll have um, a, a nylon inner rather than just your mesh. And um, they'll normally have probably at least two to three poles and be freestanding it would be i'd better to have a freestanding tent in the snow okay so um we've just talked about um using uh, four season tents and these are tents that'll cope with snow you mentioned that you there are a couple of other options that you can use as well yes one trip or quite a few trips actually i took a tent which um, was called a mega mid i'm not sure if it's available now it's basically a a pyramid style tent so it was about two meters or two and a half meters on each side four sides and then a, a center pole so we took that and um, that was our mess tent so when there were about six or seven of us and we were able to set that up and put the center pole up and um, create a table in the in the center and then dig down into the snow so we actually had chairs with backs and um all six or seven of us could sit around inside that tent at night in the snow having dinner or, or cooking dinner on, on the uh, snow table. And 
that was a very pleasant experience. And and the thing about huts too is, if you you camp outside the huts, um, and you meet a lot of interesting people inside the huts. So people might be preparing their meals in the huts together. Um, often there can be a fire, and um, yeah, so it's uh, it's very communal, and and a lot of like-minded people are um, are out there and. And I've certainly made some lifelong friends that I've met in those particular cattlemen's huts in the middle of blizzards. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, okay, so um, let's talk about um, time of the year. I mean, obviously, you've got to have snow to be able to go do some snow sports. Yeah. And and in Australia, our snow fields certainly aren't as good as as Europe or America in that, se- in that sense. But when typically is the ski season or the snow season in Australia? The, the snow season for the downhillers will go from, say, the June long weekend, if if you're lucky, um, through till perhaps um, September. Now, in Australia, uh, for cross-country, um, you can go probably earlier than that and later than that onto the higher peaks, um, such as the, the Alps around Kosciuszko. Um, the best time... I find, and, and I live in Queensland, so I would have to um, head down um, quite a few times and hope that the snow was there and also hope for good weather. So I would go in the last week of August. And why I would do that is that there'd be quite a, a good snow depth, which is what, what you want for backcountry touring. And also the days are a little bit longer and the weather is starting to get more stable. Um, you don't want it to be... You want it to be cold, but you don't want it to be lots of fronts coming through and, and blizzardy. So um, last week in August, if you can manage it, is probably the best in my books. And is that really, really, does it really matter what you're doing at that time or is it it, it pretty much suits everybody at that sort of period? Um, probably suit anyone who wants to go back country. Um, although if you're skiing... Um, if you want to go backcountry um, snowboarding, even actually, that's that's um, become more common in the last few years. Uh, they will be looking for for steeper um, slopes, and probably even later into September and October, so they can get up to the high peaks and and um, ski spring snow, which is um, pretty good. It, spring snow is is basically the during the day the the temperatures warm up so there'll be a um a softer layer of a few centimeters um it'll melt overnight problem with that it may freeze overnight as well um and then you've got ice so um yeah there's you've got to understand the basically the weather how the weather works in the in alpine region regions um how fronts work when a front goes through it'll often bring rain and high winds um, being in the snow in rain is is not a lot of fun, um, but once the front goes through and and the temperatures are really cold, it's it's a very pleasant environment in terms of it's very dry, which is uh, you wouldn't consider that. Um, so you, you, your Gore-Texes work much better than in a humid, wet conditions, and um, it can be beautiful blue skies and and you're out in wonderful scenery and landscapes and um yeah knowing your weather as well 
And so my reason for going, say, in, in later August is your you weather's more stable. You're going to have longer periods of more stable weather and, and blue skies. Now, one of the things, we, we asked this question when we went snowshoeing last weekend and, you know, we said, what is it that cancels, a, at least from a, a commercial operation perspective, what is it that cancels a, a likely snow trip? And, you know, and what we, what we were told was um, a, a drop in temperature, rain and high winds tend to be the thing that really, that's when it becomes an issue with hypothermia or potentially an issue with hypothermia. Is that the sort of stuff you typically want to avoid, or is it? You know, obviously it'd be lovely to have sunny, sunny conditions all the time, but I can imagine that's not always going to be the case. No, it's not a, not going to be the case. And I took a group down from Queensland, as I said, and we we planned to go out at a certain date, but um, the weather on that date was was quite warm, actually, and quite wet. There was a um, an east coast low funnily enough there's been a few this year and it was dumping more rain um, and warm temperatures into the alps so we had to wait until a, a nice cold front came through um, because once you get wet um, then once you get wet and then the temperatures drop then that freezes so all your, your wet gear can freeze and and that's not particularly pleasant and yeah more dangerous than say, the colder, dry temperatures. Yep, yep. Um, okay, let's, before we go sort of start talking logistics, let's talk a bit about the, the activities themselves. So we, we talked about snowshoeing in our last podcast, but in relation to skiing, I believe that, you know, we're not talking about downhill skiing here, we're talking about backcountry. What is it about backcountry and what, is the, what are the types of skiing that typical, typically people do in the backcountry? In the backcountry, um, primarily it's cross-country skis. Now, if you're at places like Perisher, you'll see um, p- across the, the road from the, the main resort, there's some cross-country trails, and you'll see a lot of cross-country ski races on those, um, although they're a good place to, to practice your cross-country technique. The backcountry skis are generally wider. Than, well, they're definitely wider than the, the standard um, racing skis however they're thinner and longer than your typical downhill ski um, and with a, if you're familiar with downhill skis they're relatively short um, and the boots are very solid plastic boots which are locked in toe and heel cross-country skis are narrower longer um, the boots pivot at the um, at the toe and there's a few different mechanisms to do that, but um, that's how they work. So you actually can, um, yeah, it's, it's not walking. It, it's more a, a slide. You sort of, you're stepping and you're sliding and stepping and sliding. And so you want to be able to lift your heel up um, to do that. And so cross-country skis will go uphill quite easily. They'll have a, a pattern underneath, which will... Um, be able to grab hold of the snow crystals, um, allowing you to get up to, I, I couldn't say the, the degrees in, in the slope, but you can ski up oh, a lot of slopes. And when it starts to get too hard, you then can um, traverse and, and contour up it as you would do perhaps walking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've heard terms, things like, uh, was it telemarking and things like that? What what what, what does that mean? Telemarking is a... a um, 
is a form of, of heading downhill on cross-country skis. And you'll see it in resorts. You'll see it in backcountry. It's, it's a very def- difficult technique to do, actually, um, where you're dropping one knee, the, the, um, the trailing knee, and um, with your heel out of the sort of off the ski and you're doing nice sweeping turns and when you see someone doing it well in deep snow it, it's just magic to watch um, but it's a very diff- difficult technique so um, for most people going on on cross-country skis at first the good old snow plow is the, the best way to to uh, stop initially yep. and if you find you're going too fast you plant your backside is <laughs> um, yeah that's no and you will fall over definitely fall over and but the good thing about where you're skiing is the snow is is generally relatively um soft compared to a lot of the resorts right. and that makes a difference does it absolutely in terms of falling over yep oh, okay um, all right yep and it makes it um it makes it a, a lot more fun in some ways it makes it more difficult if if you're trying to um, cut a trail in in um, snow that you're sinking down up to your, your shins in. So, yeah, you can travel long distances on cross-country skis even with a pack. You can do 20 to 25 kilometres even, um, whereas if you were snowshoeing, you, you couldn't do anywhere near that. Yeah. Um, so, and with different boots, and you're best off going and hiring, certainly in the beginning, um, hiring those skis, getting some tips. Um, and if you're used to downhill skis, they are a lot harder. So um, you'll, you'll get the hang of it, but um, don't expect to be an expert. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it's like anything anything you're doing the first time or second time. It's a it's a learning process, and it takes a bit of a a, a bit of a, a period until you you know what you're doing and 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 make it look easy. Yeah, and it's it's look, it's hard work, but what you can do, even a couple of ways away from a resort, it's it's a whole new world in the snow, and it's just incredibly beautiful. Um, so it, it's worth trying, and you might fall in love with it. Okay, now going back to some of the logistics again, um, you know, certainly as you mentioned before, safety is a, a big issue with that, and you know we. Uh, I believe that layering is very similar to hiking; that you you have a various layers to keep you warm without being so hot you start sweating yeah yeah definitely um and multiple layers is best and and certainly fabrics which um will stay warm when wet because it's quite hard work so you will build up a sweat um on two two particular days over over the years um i've had members of the group only wear a thermal underneath a uh, rain jacket or Gore-Tex or Japara and um, twice that that person or there were two different people on two different occasions but they became hypothermic as the temperature dropped and we had to um, basically set up camp on the side of hills um, so it's and they were fit people who had done it before um, so you've just got to be very careful I will tend to wear a, a thermal and a fleece, um, and a, a um, this is in um, if sort of cloudy conditions or windy conditions, yep. and a, a Gore-Tex. Um, and even if the fleece does get quite damp, it'll dry out um, 
and keep you warm at the same time. Whereas, yeah, going too little, um, you can get yourself in trouble. Okay, well, we talked a bit about um, four-season tents earlier, um, and I suppose one of the things that I hear uh, people are having problems with is when they're, they're cooking near or in their tents at the end of the day. Now, what's, what's the problem there? Okay, well, snow gives you um, a great advantage, actually, of cooking in your tent because if you camp on snow, and that's actually, I'll men- mention this now, is when you set up a tent on the snow, it's very different to setting up a tent on the ground. What you want to do is compact um, the area of snow where your footprint of the tent would, would be, compact that down with either your skis or your, your, um, your snowshoes, let it get cold for a little while, put your, your tent up, set it up over that um, area and, and throw your sleeping mats in, but don't get in for, for um, a little while if you can help it. Um, the reason for that is then that compressed layer will then refreeze or, or just compact down and, and freeze um, and become a nice flat layer to, to sleep on. But in the vestibule of your tent, you can actually dig that out, um, which is, is very handy. So if you dig it out to um, – so you can eventually what sit in your, your tent with your feet and your legs down into the pit that you dig in your vestibule. Yep. Um, so it's about knee height. And um, then you can cook in, in that as well. And it's really quite a safe way to cook because the problem with, with cooking, it produces carbon monoxide, which you can't smell, um, and um, it will kill you. And um, so you have to have to be careful of that. And unfortunately, that has happened um, in the, the high country, particularly in snow caves. Um, some years ago, um, one year I was out there, there were three snowboarders who that unfortunately happened to. So it's that, that's a very real threat as well. So, um, yeah, cooking your, in, your, in the pit sort of um, and the carbon monoxide sinks. Right. Um, Rather than sinking to the bottom of your tent. Yes. Yeah, so you want something lower than the, where you're sleeping. Okay. Um, any now, what other safety things do we need to be aware of? Um, uh, so we've got hypothermia. We've got to worry about um, carbon monoxide. Um, what other safety issues do we need to be conscious about when we're uh, doing some any sort of activity in the backcountry? Um, eating well um, is, is one thing that you need to to make sure that you've got enough food. Um, there was a case some of oh, quite a few years ago now that of a couple of guys who were out. And they essentially ran out of food and got caught in bad weather, um, and that had a pretty negative effect on on their survivability out in the those conditions. So make sure you have plenty of food. Eat as much as you like because you're going to burn more calories than you can carry. Okay, so now you mentioned there are a couple of other safety issues as well. We need to be conscious of what what are they? Well, in the snow. Um, You'll hear people when they're, they're hiking talking about whiteouts when they might be walking along a trail or top of a mountain in and uh, the cloud come in. Yeah, sure, that's a whiteout. But when you get in snow, it's a, it's a real whiteout um, because once you're in cloud, in the snow, it's difficult to know which way's up. And, and, um, and I've been on my skis thinking I'm stopped and then I realise the stocks are dragging. Uh, which I'm sort of rolling down the hill or, or sliding down the hill. 
And also things can, when you're in a whiteout, things that you think are a long way away, you, you see a dark object, you think, that, oh, that looks like a, a big rock, but then you get up close in a, in a few seconds, it's a small um, shrub. So it's very difficult to navigate in whiteouts in the snow. Um, um, and you can ski along and you can ski straight into the side of a, a slope without realising that, that it's there. Yeah. So you have to be a little bit aware of, of where you are, particularly if you're on the top of a, a mountain. And even on if you ski up to the top of Kosciuszko, you need to know where you are because you don't want to be um, sliding off um, a cornice um, even up on, on Kosciuszko if you've come up from um, Threadbow. So be aware of where you are and GPSs are probably the easiest way these days to do that. So, um, yeah, use, use your phone and, and download a, an app like Gaia or, or something else. Um, problem is with phones and any electrical device, you'll need batteries and, and cold temperatures will make those those batteries um, run out very quickly. So keep it close to you and keep it inside um, a coat pocket. And also take a PLV. Um, so uh, that's a personal location beacon. So if you do get out there, even if you're heading up just for the day, um, it's always a good idea. Um, so if you, you find yourself stuck and completely lost, you can always activate that. Um, it may take some time for people to get to you, depending on the conditions, though. Yeah, I, I, I must admit, I uh, um, when I when I am using batteries, I tend to use lithium batteries, and they they are fairly expensive, but they just tend to last longer. And as you say, keeping them nice and close to you to keep the keep the uh, the battery and the and the unit nice and warm, so it does last a bit longer. Yes, definitely. And even if you are camping in the snow. Put any of batteries or electrical devices inside the sleeping bag with you. Yeah. Otherwise, you may wake up to to no batteries left. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's always the thing. It's sort of uh, um, you you can go through an awful lot of batteries very quickly, particularly when you're running GPSs. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, but having said this, it sounds like it's a really dangerous thing to do, and it, if you're not aware of of what you're doing, yes, it can be, but. Um, it's such a, a beautiful, challenging place, but it can be a lot of fun. And I took my 13-year-old daughter snow camping um, and she, yeah, she felt it hard, but um, but she loved it. And um, so don't be put off, but understand the risks, I suppose, and you can easily manage those. Now, I suppose the obvious question here, uh, going to the toilet when you're out in the middle of a, a snowfield, what are the differences there? I mean, I think it's, it's probably going to be a bit hard to dig through two or three foot of snow to get uh, uh, soil layer, but what do, do, what do you do? And yeah, that's, I looked up the, um, the rules for Kosciuszko at the moment, and if you're backcountry, you need to pack it out. Um, which and the reason for that is that you're quite correct that you can't reach the the, the soil level to dig your six inches down the, what you'd normally do hiking um, and what was happening is is people snow camping were going to the toilet and it just sitting on top of the snow 
Um, it may have been buried in under the snow, but as that melted, it then would be sitting on top of the ground and then be washed down into the glacial lakes and the, the water areas, um, the, the rivers. So if you're backcountry um, and away from the huts, you need to carry it out. And that will be mainly in the, the, uh, the Alps area. Um, dotted around both the, the Victorian and, and New South Wales ski or ski areas, alpine areas, are, are old cattlemen's huts. And these have been upkept by hiking and uh, cross-country skiing groups. And they're great places to go because in most of those, there are pit toilets. So that's what I'd be recommending, that if you're going snow camping, particularly in the early days, head towards the huts and hut hop, but always take a tent as well. Yep. Um, so then the toileting doesn't become an issue. Um, and for obviously for males, it's a lot easier. Um, and um, for the ladies, unfortunately, yeah, it's away from the resorts and toilets. It, it can be a bit cold, but... Yeah, you learn to be very quick. <laughs> now, when you say pack it out, I know in the States they have things called wag bags. What do we use in Australia to, to pack toilet waste out in? Um, there's a, a few different ways of, of doing it. I've seen people with poo tubes, basically PVC pipes that get down at Bunnings and, and having a screw on end on both ends and, and basically having that on the side of the, the tent. Oh, it's just not, sorry, not. Size of the tent, side of the pack. Yeah. Um, these days, you can. There are chemical solutions that, um, in fact, are powders that will turn human waste into um, solid, basically, and and so it's a lot easier to to carry in in heavy duty plastic bags. So probably I'd be looking into that sort of um, solution rather than just having a a PVC pipe full of. Uh, Plain human waste. Yep, yep. Okay, so still on logistics. What about food? What is there anything different with food for backcountry snow sports to, compared to hiking, or is it pretty much the same? With food for the, with um, backcountry snow camping, you're actually in a big fridge, so you can take whatever you like, um, and which is so nice. You can take fresh meat, fresh. Um, that can be chicken. We've even had chicken as well. And and you can take that, although the chicken I'd start off um, and eat that the first night. Um, but, yeah, you can take lots of things and it won't go off, um, which is really nice. And a thing of – so basically fresh food um, is great. Also water you don't have to worry about, um, whereas you think on the Lara Pinta Trail or, or – lots of drier tracks you've got to carry a lot of water you don't have to in the snow um, because you've got essentially water all around you with the snow a couple of tricks in in melting that snow is to um, use a billy and on top of your stove and put a little bit of water in the billy first and then pack your snow in on top so that way that the, the hot water will um conduct that heat through the snow and it'll melt a lot quicker yeah um, if you just put straight snow in it it can take quite a while um so that that's a reduction in weight there and if you you can reach some of the streams which are, are beautiful and clear however i would still either boil that water or 
filter it or use a SteriPen on it because there is E. coli up in the Alps. Yeah. Um, and, and this is what's come from uh, the human waste being around and now the animals have got that in their systems. And so even though the, the water looks beautiful and clear, um, you best treat it. Otherwise, you don't want to get sick in the in the snow. Yeah. Now, I believe as well there's an issue with um, that's, that's typically not an issue with my, from, from a hiking perspective, but that uh, when you are cooking in the Alps, uh, that the gas doesn't tend, the gas canisters don't tend to last as long because of the altitude. Yep, that, that is true. What you need to do is um, I'll use a jet boiler if I'm using gas, and they have a mix which is um, made for cold conditions. So definitely don't skimp on that. Otherwise, you'll find that the normal butane that you might get down at BCF won't do the job. Um, also, I for some years, I carried a, a Trangia, which is great, using Metho. Yep. And that's quite an efficient thing to use. And a trick there is you can, and for hiking as well, you can add about 10% water to your Metho. So carry Metho, and when you put it in your little burner, add a little bit of water to it. Um, it'll make it go further and it won't, it'll get, you won't have that problem of soot underneath your cooking pans and, and pots. Yep. Yeah, I must admit, I uh, in the days when I used to use Trangias on a regular basis, uh, that was always an issue. Now, these days, I still will use Trangia pots, but I uh, I tend to use the, the the canister type stoves, either the jet boils or the MSRs, um, just uh, just for convenience. They are very convenient. So the idea there is certainly um, buy the ones, the canisters that are good in cold temperatures. Yeah. Also, um, a couple of things with. Uh, the food preparation is once you've finished um, preparing it and you want to clean up, um, take some some rubber gloves, just some that you buy at Woolies or, um, because they will make your life so much easier when you're going out into the snow in sub-zero temperatures and cleaning your pots um, and your hands won't get cold at all. Um, so that that's another thing. And also, you can have ice cream if you if you want when you're out there. You can mix some, say, condensed milk with some flavours. Um, you can even make jelly because you are living in a fridge. Yeah, yeah. I must admit, I, uh, I I get strange looks. I love I love ice cream in the middle of winter, and people look at me strangely and thinking, you know, it's it's a, it's a, a summertime or a, a heat time time food. But you know, winter time is a good time for ice cream as well. Yeah, I must admit, I haven't been. Um, a big fan of it, but I have seen people do it. I'd rather have the hot chocolate instead. Okay, so we've been talking with Gary Tisher about backcountry snow sports. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Now, next we catch up with... Bruce Easton from Wilderness Sports in Jindabyne uh, and just touching base about options and alternatives for getting out in the backcountry. Okay, so we, last week we talked about snowshoeing uh, uh, specifically. Uh, now, I believe Wilderness Sports also does ski touring as well. Tell us a bit about what you have on offer in relation to getting people out on skis. Ski touring so many different aspects for different people. If you're an alpine skier, then locking your heel down is a pretty important characteristic. But when the lifts are not there, you've got to hike up the hill. And uh, 
that's where climbing skins or possibly a broader pattern base make a bit of a difference. If you're a cross-country skier and used to skiing around the trails, then you're looking at something more like a wider, slightly broader um, ski, but still will have a pattern on it. And it's a bit more like a bush horsing sort of setup. And then we've also got the hybrid version, which is like telemarking, where basically you've got a pattern-based ski, a cable binding. So ski touring's a massive um, variety of things, and really it's determined a little bit by what your plan is, whether you're just going out to literally climb up the hill so that you can turn around and ski down off that summit, or whether you're actually going to travel out to some of the huts, like out towards Tugungal or up to Schlenk or those sort of places where, you know, it's 10 kilometres to go in and you wouldn't really be necessarily going up on a pair of alpine touring skis. But strangely enough, there are people who do that. Um, they just happen to be a bit fitter and a little bit more um, <laughs> adventurous. Yeah, I suppose that's the thing. I mean, there's there's so much choice these days, and if you're into an activity, whether it be snowshoeing or skiing, and you love it, you, you just keep on doing it. Yeah, uh, and again, I guess that's one of the things that sets us apart because we're in a position with our guiding business where we can show people how to make the most of that activity, no matter which equipment you choose, so that you learn and understand how to be a little more efficient you understand the performance and limitations of the equipment, and you can start to be a little more efficient. So things like packing your skins away, um, how to use uh, ski crampons. Um, there are products um, also that just make it a little safer. So attaching your skis to a pack, as much as that might sound a very simple sort of thing, um, being able to do that efficiently and you know, taking into account the fact that it might be, you know, 50 to 70 plus kilometre hour winds, um, the wind chill because it's quite cold, all of those things start to become a little more relevant. And because we've got such an extensive hire um, of all of this equipment, it gives people an opportunity to basically try different things to find out what the most ideal equipment is to actually achieve the goals and the adventures and the experiences that they want to enjoy the most from their limited time that they have in the mountain. Now, if um, if someone was interested in skiing and they and they didn't want to do downhill skiing, but they wanted to do something a bit more backcountry-ish, what would you recommend they start off with? What's the what's the the what's the the skiing activity that's really going to hook people into 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 backcountry skiing? Well, this is where often you know just in talking through the array of different equipment available. Often we encourage people to look at something like a three-hour tour where they can actually learn the basics and start to understand a little bit more about why it's important to, you know, have a pack that's got a little bit of spare equipment, you know, another base layer or something like that, spare pair of gloves, sunglasses, goggles, a hat, you know, sun protection just as much as cold weather and how to be really efficient with that because once you're in the alpine environment, you know, you really need to make the most of your experience to have some of those things just to make it comfortable. Yeah. And that's the secret with, you know, those sort of tours. Is once you've got the right equipment, 
then you can make the most of the, the trip that you're planning. And so you need to factor in, you know, where you're going, how to get there more efficiently. So you've got to look at the weather, start to understand the snow conditions a little bit as well. If it's going to be an icy day, then basically you're out for a bit of a journey and go sightseeing because you're not going to be able to enjoy the down as much as you might have anticipated. Other days, it's more about the down and trying to find somewhere, for example, in the trees where it might be really windy and, you know, there's a lot of fresh snow. So looking for destinations that get you into the tree line that allow you to make the most of those conditions is the ideal way to look at it. So something like a three-hour tour or something like that seems to be the best way and then you can start to look at what you might do for a full day where you start to journey more into the advanced alpine terrain and also you've got a better understanding then of what it's like to ski and tour off piece um, and use your equipment to its full advantage. So again we've uh, we've been talking with Bruce Easton about uh, options for skiing in the Australian Alps and backcountry. Bruce thank you for your time. Thank you once again, Tim. It's awesome to uh, encourage people and, uh, you know, we certainly look forward, whether it's uh, through the, the winter months when the resorts are operating or when they close down, there's certainly plenty of other opportunities people can come down and still continue to uh, experience the open environment. Okay, so we've heard from both Gary and Bruce in relation to uh, backcountry activities, including skiing and backcountry camping. Gary asked me to convey that uh, backcountry travel in the winter is a bit like an ocean. On a calm day, it looks beautiful and even sublime, but you need to be prepared for those days that do happen regularly when the wind is gale force, the temperature is freezing and the snow is piling up. The calm days after the cold front has passed and is probably the reason you are out in the backcountry, away from the crowds and enjoying nature at its best. So really in that sort of respect, you know, yes, we talked a lot about the negatives, but it was more so you can be prepared than anything else. If you have a look at the photos uh, attached to the podcast, you'll see there are some really stunning, absolutely stunning um, images. Um, and I think... That's what he's talking about. That's why you go and do it and that's that's why you do all that uh, preparation and uh, possibly expect the worst on the basis that you're going to get some of that really um, beautiful countryside and quite uh, almost um, serene uh, landscape that you'll be camping in. And I think the thing is an overall perspective. I mean, I've done quite a lot of um, hiking up in the um, in the Australian Alps, and as has Jill. Um, but looking at it in the middle of summer, when you can see everything, you can see the creeks, you can see the hollows, uh, you can see all the dips and the drop-offs, whereas wintertime, when it's covered in snow, a lot of that stuff tends to be hidden. So the navigation becomes a bit more important, and the safety aspects become a bit more important as well. So going through Gary's interview to start with, I mean, he talked about um, basically having a guided experience if this is new to you. And, and that's, 
from our perspective, we in the previous episode, we talked about snowshoeing and we did have a guided experience. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but having someone that knows what they're doing, whether it be a club or an experienced friend or a commercial operator that can take you out and make, make the experience so much better is definitely the way to go. Um, we talked about snow camping, and again, this is something definitely a bit different. For, for a lot of people, it might be you just go out for a day or half a day and that's it. Uh, but if you want to go a bit more involved and actually camp in the snow, um, there's a bit more involved. And yeah, and while a lot of your gear may be uh, suitable for, for you, uh, getting a good four-season tent that's going to cope with the, the weight of the snow and keep you warm when it is quite cold at night time is, is pretty essential. We covered things like um, uh, having a good sleeping bag, uh, talked about um, how to set up in the snow, uh, and we also talked about, you know, of avoiding the wet weather, which is something we repeated from last week. Uh, it's okay being in wet weather, but you want to make sure you, whatever you are wearing, you stay dry. So if you once once your clothing gets wet and you're out in the open, that's when you can potentially have issues. We looked at skiing options, and again, you know, Gary did also mention snowboarding as well as becoming more more popular in the backcountry. Um, you know, it gets you away from the crowds. And I think that's the big thing with getting away from the resorts. I have never really seen the, uh, and I'm not quite sure the word I'm looking for. The attraction, The attraction, that's the one. I don't know. I've never really seen the attraction with going up and down on a ski lift all day. Um, (laughs) You know, it's, there's a lot of people in the world that enjoy it. Uh, But for me personally, I'd, I'd rather get away from the crowds and get out and into the environment uh, and that means getting out into the backcountry uh, and doing something different. Um, so, you know, everybody has different preferences. Uh, and if the crowds aren't it, uh, backcountry may be the way to go. It was interesting looking at the safety aspects. Uh, obviously, hypothermia, being in a cold environment, is something you need to be prepared for. Eating well, uh, and again, that's never an issue from my perspective. Um, although, having said that, The day we went snowshoeing, I didn't actually eat a lot. Uh, I was toasty and warm. Uh, But for me, when I exert myself, I lose appetite. So, you know, certainly if you're going out for a period of days, you need to make sure you have good meals uh, at least through the end of the day, uh, if not during the day, to make sure you keep the energy up. I think it's not just the energy. I think you need to keep your metabolism moving and um, that will help keep you warm as well. Um, we did start looking at some of the negatives, so things like whiteouts and, and, and navigation. Uh, and as I said, from my perspective, um, you know, I have seen areas in wintertime and in summer where you would not know there's a drop-off or a deep creek in the area you're about to walk through. Um, and this is where map reading and having things like GPSs are going to keep you on track are essential, Um, but you really, really do need to be paying a bit more attention. Summertime, as I said, when you can see it, it's a bit easier, but, you know, wintertime, a lot of it tends to be hidden. Um, Going to the toilet in the snow, again, it's sort of something that, you know, it's not the most most attractive topic to talk about, um, but really you can't just dig a hole in the snow and bury your toilet waste because as soon as the snow melts, it's going to be there uh, in the the spring and summer. So, you know, you need to come prepared if you are going to be camping overnight. 
And as Gary suggested, you know, if you're starting out, be camping near huts that have toilets, makes things much easier, uh, or else come prepared to pack out all your waste with you. Um, something he mentioned that I hadn't actually thought about was the fact that, you know, you were essentially in a big, big fridge. So taking meat and taking um, uh, things like uh, ice cream or even making jelly is something you wouldn't really think about on a normal camping trip. Uh, but it gives you the option in these colder conditions. But you do need to come prepared for that as far as cooking. Uh, and you do need to be conscious about um, um, you know, what you're eating and how much effort you're willing to put in. I'm pretty lazy. As much as I love food, I'm pretty lazy on my cooking. I'd rather just boil water, add it to a bag and let it rehydrate. Uh, but that really is a personal preference. Yeah, I think, you know, that kind of uh, adds a, an interesting perspective to um, doing backcountry touring if, you know, you can um, – cook up some different food and you can enjoy something a little bit more social um, might actually take your mind off from feeling so cold. I don't know. <laughs> you you can tell that it'd be a long time before I get to uh, sleep in a tent in the middle of the snow. Um, I'm happy to do the day trips, but, oh, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure about sleeping in a tent in the snow. Now, next we talked to Bruce Easton uh, from Wilderness Sports. Uh, and again, we talked to Bruce last week about snowshoeing. Wilderness Sports also take out people for uh, ski touring. Uh, and they also take people out and teach them how to snow camp as well. So, you know, if it's something that is new to you, and again, from my perspective, I have never actually, I've camped in snow, but I've never actually gone into the snow fields to camp. Um, and, you know, uh, certainly from my perspective, certainly the first or second time, I'd probably like to go with an organised group or go with a tour operator just to make sure that we, uh, we're shown the ropes and, and shown to what, what, what we can and can't do. And that really applies um, for us uh, to almost anything that we do. Um, you know, when we were rock climbing, when we were mountaineering, when we were uh, snowshoeing um, a, a few weeks ago, um, our preference is always to seek out a guide and and to to get a better sense of how to do it well from the very beginning, uh, rather than necessarily stumble in. Okay, so we hope this has provided you with a bit of an overview of backcountry snow sports. Again, it doesn't just mean skiing; it can mean you know it could even mean snowshoeing and tenting as you go. Uh, so it really does provide you with some options. Uh, but if you are interested in um, going out and trying to get away from the resorts uh, and spend a couple of nights out in the snow, uh, certainly Wilderness Sports are, are a good option to help you do that. Uh, and we'll have their contact information in the show notes for this podcast. Um, and it'll be worthwhile if you are interested, contact them to see if they can, if they can offer you something that you hadn't really thought about before. Now, just as a final thing for this episode, uh, Wilderness Sports in Jindabyne has been kind to donate a very generous prize for our newsletter subscribers. And to be in the chance to win this prize, you need to be a newsletter subscriber and to receive the newsletter, which will be sent out by email on the 1st of September. All we need you to do is be a subscriber answer a couple of questions and you'll go in the draw to win this prize. 
Okay, that's all for this week's episode uh, and the last of our wintertime snow uh, episodes. We hope you've enjoyed this and we hope this has provided you with a different alternative to getting out bush when the weather is a bit colder and there's lots of snow about. That's all for this week. Bye for now. And bye from me.